Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. I want to read through again, if I can, uh, Exodus chapter 2 and verses 1 through 11. A man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and had a son. She saw there was something special about him and hid him. She hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a little basket boat made of papyrus, waterproofed it with tar and pitch, and placed the child in it. Then she set it afloat in the reeds at the edge of the Nile. The baby's older sister found herself a vantage point a little way off and watched to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter came down to the Nile to bathe. Her maiden strolled on the bank and she saw a basket boat floating in the reeds and sent her maid to get it. She opened it and saw a child, a baby crying. Her heart went out to him and she said, this must be one of the Hebrew babies. Then a sister was before her. Do you want me to go and get a nursing mother from the Hebrews so she can nurse the baby for you? Pharaoh's daughter said, yes, go. And the girl went and called the child's mother. uh, Pharaoh's daughter told her, take this baby and nurse him for me. I'll pay you. The woman took the child and nursed him. After the child was weaned, she presented him to Pharaoh's daughter who adopted him as her son. And she named him Moses, drawn out, saying, I pulled him out of the water. Time passed, and as Moses grew up, one day he went out and saw his brothers. Moses, the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, somehow knew of his Hebrew origins. Now, how he knew, we aren't told. It's left to our imaginations. But the passage says when he was growing or when he became of age, he went out to see his own people, his brethren. So he clearly knew of his Hebrew origins. In the New Testament, we're given several commentaries on this particular passage of Scripture. One of them is found in Acts chapter 7 as Stephen is making his defense. And the second is found in Hebrews chapter 11, the great faith chapter. And both those two passages reference the story. What I'd like to do in this message is actually go to the passage in Hebrews chapter 11 and look at it in a little more detail. It's found in verses 24 through verse 26, and it says, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. He looked to the reward. Now, there are three key words in this passage that I'd like to highlight. It says he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to suffer the affliction, identifying with the people of God rather than engaging in the sins of Egypt. And thirdly, he esteemed the reproach of Christ. So the three words are refused, choosing and esteeming. These three words reveal a process that went on within Moses's inner life. If we were observing Moses from the outside, we would note that his public refusal to be identified with the Egyptians would have ultimately been derived from the inner choices that he made as a result of the deliberations that he had entered into and then a choice that he had made. So what I'm saying here is that the order of these words presented to us in Hebrews is in fact the very opposite of the way that they would have actually occurred. 
Firstly, he would have esteemed. Secondly, he would have chosen. And thirdly, that resulted in his behavioral refusal. Now, the order of the words is simply a matter of the perspective that Moses is being viewed from, from the outside in or from the inside out. Let me, let me try and illustrate what I'm trying to say. When the tabernacle is being described, sometimes it is described from the inside, God's perspective, if you like, moving outwards. So it starts with describing the furniture and the holy of holies and moves out to the outer court. On other occasions, it's described exactly the other way around, starting from the outer court, the brazen altar, and moving through into the Holy of Holies. The order is just dependent on what perspective we are looking from. Is it from the inside out or from the outside in? The order that we are given, uh, those three words is given in Hebrews, is the process of Moses being observed from the outside in. Outwardly, he refuses because inwardly he'd made some choices as a result of some deep inner deliberations. So I'm going to flip the order of the words around and look at them esteeming, choosing, refusing. The first step in Moses's, uh, uh, in this process is Moses' refusal to be identified as an Egyptian. It comes, from, it comes from esteeming. And the Greek word that the Hebrew uses is hagiomai. And it means to judge or to take account of the idea of weighing something up. So W.E. Vine in his expository dictionary of Greek words says, giving consideration to weighing and comparing options. If you could perhaps imagine a set of scales with the positive on one side, the negative on another, or maybe a plus minus column that we might uh, develop to help us decide whether to buy a building or which university we might attend. Actually, hegeomai, the word that's used, esteeming, is used by Paul in Philippians chapter 3 and verses 4 through 8, where he says, If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. But, he says, what things were gained to me, these I have hegeomai, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, Paul also had done some inner esteeming. He, he did a plus minus column exercise. In the plus side, he has what many of his time would, would consider to be tremendous advantages. He was a Hebrew of Hebrew with all that attended that. And yet Paul says all of these supposed advantages were absolutely nothing when weighed in the scales. Uh, and, and on the other side is the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, I, I don't count those things as being important. They don't have the weight of the divine calling of Christ over my life. Now Moses enters into exactly the same process thousands of years before Paul. He's been raised as Pharaoh's daughter, her adoptive son. And the advantages of such a position were considerable. Many would have looked at Moses and said something to the effect that, well, that boy was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He had wealth, he had prestige, he had Egyptian sophistication, he had an Egyptian education. He would have been educated in what was then known as the Temple of the Sun, and it was the Oxford of the ancient world. 
There he would have been taught science, astronomy, mathematics, engineering, medicine, and theology. When Stephen's describing this in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, he says, Moses was learned in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. The message translation says, Moses was educated in the best schools in Egypt. He was equally impressive as a thinker and as an athlete. He, was, he, he, he had developed into greatness. Extra-biblical historians say that Moses, as a military commander, had led the Egyptian army in a crushing defeat of the Ethiopian forces. So Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24 says, having become of age, it literally means having become great. It seems that the world lay at Moses' feet. His plus side of the column was long and weighty. On the other side was simply a sense of the divine call and what Hebrews 11 says, the reproach of Christ. The Amplified translation says of, of the reproach of Christ, the rebuke that he would suffer as a result of his faithful obedience. For both Paul and Moses, the reasons to stay exactly with where they were was just like more of the same pleas were, were immense. However, both of them saw beyond the temporal advantages of this world to an eternal reward. J.B. Phillips says of Moses, he looked steadily at the ultimate and not the immediate reward. You know, psychologists tell us that the mark of growing maturity in children is their ability to defer a lesser immediate reward for a greater ultimate reward. We know that when they're able to do this, that they're growing up. You know, that might be a stinging indictment on our now generation. We want it and we want it now. Listen to the, pri uh, the cry that rings out at almost every protest. What do we want? You, you fill in the blank. When do we want it? And the answer is now. You know, uh, this came home to me a little while ago when uh, I was looking for a particular book. I thought I'd get it on Kindle because I wanted it as fast as possible. I went on to Amazon and found that there wasn't a Kindle version of that book. And I found myself saying, oh, rats, now I'm going to have to wait two weeks. And it suddenly dawned on me how I have been immersed in and shaped by this now generation. You know, if my great-grandfather missed a coach out of town, it wouldn't have amounted to a big deal. He knew that there was another one next week. If we miss one section of a revolving door, we're reaching for the clonazepam to ward off an impending anxiety attack. The thought of viewing life through an eternal lens is completely foreign to many people in our culture. You know, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 23, verse 4 and 5 says, Don't overwork to be rich. Because of your own understanding, cease. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? Wealth is described by the writer to the Proverbs as something that is not. Now, I venture to suggest that most in, people in our culture would disagree vehemently. Wealth has substantial advantages, and we would say it is, not it is not. Whatever you want, you name it, can, wealth can procure it. That hardly qualifies to be called and is not. Well, that depends entirely on what lens you are viewing life through. A temporal one or an eternal one. A now one or a later one. Both Moses and Paul saw beyond the immediate temporal and what the scripture says, the pleasures of sin that are for a season, beyond to eternal issues. 
So Moses did this reckoning in his heart. He did the maths. He had his plus and minus column. He esteemed. Jesus actually encourages an internal reckoning and esteeming when it comes to the issue of our discipleship. In Luke chapter 14 and verse 28, it says, Now great multitudes were with him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So we're talking about discipleship. And he says, Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and do some esteeming? It says, count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after having laid the foundation, he's not able to finish it. And all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, Jesus says, does not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying, do the maths. Look at the plus minus column. Put it on the scales. Do the inner esteeming that is required. When you do this internal audit, it is not enough to count the hidden costs of saying yes to a new enterprise. You must also count the hidden costs of saying no. You know what? I've witnessed scores of people make the claim that the cost of following Jesus at some point of obedience was just too high. And they then went on to pay an even greater cost for their disobedience. People who decide that sexual purity is just too high a cost to pay end up paying an even greater price for their impurity. People who decide that giving and tithing is too high a cost to pay end up paying an even greater price for failing to give. Businessmen and women who decide integrity is too demanding and end up paying an even greater price for their lack of integrity. You know, in life, everything costs. There are no free lunches, as the adage says, and that adage is coined from experience. You pay now or you pay later. God's way is to pay now and enjoy the benefits later. Satan always comes to us and says, you can enjoy the benefits now. We'll talk about what you need to pay later. And he never tells you about the hidden costs and the interest that kicks in once the loan has been drawn down. Moses' inner calculations, his inner esteeming, his plus-minus column, leads him to the second step, which is choosing, which then ultimately manifests itself outwardly as his refusal to participate in Egyptian identity. We see the same in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8. Daniel is in Babylonian captivity as Moses is in the Egyptian culture. And it says in verse 8 of chapter 1, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. So here's Daniel inwardly resolving. He has rehearsed, he's esteemed, he's resolved, he's chosen, and therefore he refuses. You esteem and you resolve before a crisis and not in the midst of it. You esteem and choose, and then you manage that choice in life's tough moments. 
Joseph refused Egyptian sensuality in the form of his master's wife because he, he had done the esteeming, he had done the deliberation, he chose, therefore he refused. Daniel refuses covenantal loyalty to Babylon in the form of its food. Paul refused the status and rewards that would have come to him through his lineage and religious tradition. And Moses refuses to be identified as an Egyptian in spite of the significant advantages, advantages that would have accrued to him. Can I suggest to you that we will never be able to release the God-given delivering potential and calling within us unless we make those prior inner calculations and inner choices. The grace of God makes his resources available to us, but it's our choices that make them effectual. Now, I know and you know people who would say, well, I'm open to God's purposes. I'm, I'm open to being a Christian. That's not enough. Being open to something is not the same as being committed to it. Being open to being saved is not the same as being saved. You know, I remember seeing a sign many, many years ago outside a Salvation Army church, actually. It said, almost persuaded is almost saved. Almost saved is entirely lost. We must move from being almost persuaded to being open to God's purposes to being committed to them as a result of the deliberate esteeming and choosing that we have done. So we esteem and we choose and that issues or ushers in a refusal. You know, there are significant voices, both religious and secular, that would probably object to what I'm saying right now about the power of our deliberation and choices. Many say that free will is in fact a myth. Secular voices say we don't have free will because we are programmed by our DNA and we simply dance to its tune. We live in a deterministic world with no genuine possibility of free will. There are some religious voices that say we don't have true, true free will because God has sovereignly foreordained the way that we will choose. Some form of strong Calvinism goes in that direction. Either way, of course, the result is the same. Free will is a myth. It does not exist. Now, the religious voices that deny free will would probably actually use the book of Exodus as evidence for their case. They, they might point to the fact that in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, before Moses is in, even in Egypt, it says, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all the wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So Pharaoh wasn't going to have any say in the matter, apparently. Now, before we say case closed, I think we should make sure we read the whole story. Now, I would want to say that I think God's supervising sovereignty is over this and actually over every other story, and that that supervising sovereignty provides the outer framework of all of the stories. But the inner story at ground level, if you like, you know, seven out of the ten times where hardening is mentioned in Pharaoh's heart, it is Pharaoh that does the hardening, not God. How do we interpret and understand these seeming contradictions? Well, can I suggest with humility is a good place to start. There is and always will be a mystery in holding together God's sovereign responsibility and, 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 and man's responsibility. The Bible seems to affirm both. <clears throat> 
You know, some sensitive souls read these types of texts uh, with a degree of moral anxiety. If God hardened Pharaoh's heart, the poor man had no meaningful choice. How could he be blameworthy for something that he actually had no control over? Where does that leave me? Do I or, or can I have any security in my relationship with God? Perhaps he's eternally ordained me to slip away and maybe be lost. But before you enter into that kind of thinking and this kind of second guessing becomes a stumbling back block, I suggest we go back and read the whole story. Let's back up for a moment. Pharaoh is the man who treated an immigrant ethnic community with great and sustained cruelty. This is the man who moves from cruelty to genocide, requiring all the male children to be fed to the crocodiles in the Nile River. This is the man who rejects every request and every warning that is given by Moses. Nobody made him do that. The language of hardening hasn't even been mentioned, hasn't occurred up to this point. It only begins to happen as the plagues occur. And as the plagues begin on six occasions, it is Pharaoh that hardens his own heart. In chapter 7 verse 13, chapter 7 verse 22, chapter 8 verse 15, chapter 8 verse 19, chapter 8 verse 32, and chapter 9 verse 7, each of them say something to the effect that his heart grew hard or he hardened his heart. And it's only after those six occasions that we read that God gave him up to his own choices. But like Romans chapter 1, ratifying and strengthening his choices by further hardening his heart. So in chapter 9 verse 12, chapter 10 verse 1, chapter 10 verse 20 and chapter 11 verse 10, it says, the Lord hardened his heart. It seems to me that God honors our choices. We have free will. I believe we intuitively know this. And I think it's true what people say. The ultimate respect that God plays, pays to our free will is actually hell, where he allows unrepentant sinners to go where they want to go. Thy will be done. Our inner deliberations and the subsequent choices that we make are vital for matters both temporal and eternal. Um, and I'd like to go even further and say there's no such thing as an insignificant or a trivial choice. The little ones really matter. Choices lead to acts. Acts lead to habits. Habits lead to character. And character ultimately manifests itself in a destiny. You know, it's been noted that the chains of habit are too weak to be noticed until they're too strong to be broken. Bondages, um, addictions come choice by choice by choice. We, we build on them. Choices really do matter. It reminds me of a sign that was found at the beginning of the Canadian wilderness where the Tarsil Road ended and a track began and it said, Choose your rut well because you'll be in it for the next 20 miles. Make good and godly choices. They determine your future. Do the maths. Do the inner esteeming. Make the choices before you find yourself in the crisis moments. As Joseph, as Daniel, as Moses, as Paul had all done. They had done the inner esteeming. Looking through the eternal lens, deciding who and what they were about. And then in the heat of the moment, they simply managed the choices they had already made that had been based on the inner esteeming and calculations that they had gone through. 
make good choices in little things as well as intermediate things as well as big things because those little choices will ultimately make you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.